Marshall, or is it Marshall? I want to say good morning and see how are you doing this fine morning? I'm great. How are you? Good, thanks. I think I'm dialing in from New York. Are you in Florida at the moment? No, I'm in. I'm outside Atlanta. That's where I live. So I've been here since uh, 2017 when I decided to, as they say, go all in on this whole wrestling experience. Right. Most of the great talent seems to be in Georgia, Nevada, Florida at this point. Did you entirely move down for wrestling or is it just luck and chance that you were in Georgia and that happens to be the wrestling capital? No, I, uh, my wife and I, we packed up our stuff on January 1st, 2017, and we moved down here and uh, with the thought of opening a wrestling school and seeing what happened. Well, so I, my goal, my goal was to open up the greatest wrestling school in the world and then have obviously a major company, you know, want me to work for them. Sure. Well, is it a coincidence that you, a New Jersey native who moved to Georgia, received the diamond cutter, the ability to do the gimmick and be the only person who can do that from a person who moved from New Jersey to Georgia? <laughs> yes, entirely 100% coincidence. Um, we have a lot of similarities, right? So like we both didn't catch a break till we were 35. Yeah, uh, we've both been trying to get in the, the mainstream wrestling industry since we were, you know, very young. Um, and then, you know, when AEW had started back, actually, basically at All In, when Cody was training for All In, Dallas had came to the, you know, to have my facility. And I just got to know him. And I think he just saw like a really hard worker that wasn't going to take no for an answer and was going to do everything in his power. Like to this day, I mean, people can hate on me all they want. I really don't care. I train four nights a week for this. You know what I mean? Like in yeah. the ring training, not just hanging out, sitting in a chair. I mean, in the ring training. Um, and, you know, I've always been the type of person that I don't care if you can see the hard work I'm putting in because I know what hard work I'm putting in and it shows in my in-ring work, right? Like, unfortunately, there's a lot of talented people in the world. Um, but when it comes to live TV, that's a whole nother you know, a whole different thing and having the trust of, of people that are in the higher, you know, positions to make sure that you're okay to do that, especially like all last year during the pandemic when we had no fans. So now it's extremely difficult uh, to go out there. And luckily I always joke about it, but I've been wrestling in front of nobody in a wrestling facility for, you know, 16 years. So it kind of worked out for me. Yes. So recapping some of what you said with some of my own commentary right here, you're in rare company in that not only are you a contracted wrestler on a show that millions of people watch every week, not only are you training a lot of the talent that we see on that, the various shows like Dark and Dark Elevation, but also you're working the production end of television. You're doing all those things at once. So I'm just curious, how does it work in terms of scheduling your life like that? Because it seems like you're on call 24-7 for multiple people. Yeah, I woke up this morning at 3 a.m. to a text from Tony Khan about this week's television show. Uh, um, you know, it's it's the dream job. So I don't really care at this point uh, how it happens. I kind of just go with the flow and I make it work. And, you know, there are sacrifices. I mean, uh, my wife, you know, she understands and she's very understanding. Thank God. Uh, but I've also known her since we're eight years old. So, you know, at eight, I was telling her I was going to be a professional wrestler. So I think that 
she's more lenient towards it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult to schedule, you know, to prioritize. Um, but you know, AEW is the thing that puts the food on the table as they say. So that's priority number one ish, right? Cause she's number one as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. and she's been really great about it, but yeah, it's, it's, extremely difficult to to balance it all out especially on the nights that i have to perform um you know tony and i have started this ongoing bit that nobody sees where i go out around 753 754 and i talk to the live house and then he comes out he sends me to the back and you know having material for that and then knowing that i have a promo later and then possibly a match on dark and then plus you know we're we're on the headsets and you know, but I wouldn't have it any other way. It is the exact job that I always told uh, Cody that I wanted, um, you know, and luckily I was able to be thrusted into this, you know, this uh, wild world we're living in right now. Being a Northeast native, even though you are a Georgian, uh, I would have to assume based on your humor, you were a Conan O'Brien guy growing up. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so what I see that you do career-wise is kind of like being – the main writer on Conan O'Brien in that like late nineties, early two thousands era, where you come out and you do the warm up, like what you do, you speak to the crowd beforehand, then you come back and you're putting the show together. And then you also wind up in some of the skits in the case of the comedy writer, the matches, the segments and all that. So it's really no different than being a top tier comedy writer in a respectful way. Sure. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, I don't like to, I don't like to uh, take the credit because again, it is Tony's show and Tony is the one putting it all together with the EVPs and stuff. I always joke, like people ask me stuff at TV and I'm like, I don't think you understand exactly what I do. You know, I literally just put it on the paper um, and give you guys information and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it is a, it is a very uh, important, important job, right? Somebody has to do it. Um, but I love it. Like I said, I mean, if that's, the uh, comparison that we're going to make, I'll take it all day because, you know, my dream of course was to headline, you know, the biggest pay-per-view and win the world title. And, and no one's going to, no one could ever take that from me. You know what I mean? So I'm just going to keep working as hard as I possibly can. And I know there's a lot of people that don't like it because again, they don't know the actual story of how I got right. to where I'm at. Right. They know the, the narrative that we tell them and, you know, I get a lot of online hate and that's okay. You know, I, I luckily I was taught one of the first things I was taught in the wrestling industry before, you know, the, the world kind of changed was you need to have thick skin. And that's not just in wrestling, that's in the world. Um, you know, and I'm very, I'm very thick skin. Let's put it that way. Well, that actually answered one, another thing that I was going to ask you, which is people who see your documentary and hear your interviews, those people know about your journey, how hard it was to get where you are now, where you have been for a few years now. They also know that you're very, very hardworking, that when you were working at Disney World you, uh, or the Disney restaurant, you knew how to speak all the different languages out of necessity in the best of ways. So the work ethic was always there, but was the positive attitude and the I am going to make it always there? It was. I mean, until I signed with Ring of Honor and then again, you know, letting the fans get to you, which it's different if they're booing you, right? But when they're acting messaging you and sending you hate messages like you don't deserve to work like things like that where I'm just thinking like you know again I, at 27 I kind of let that get to me um, I had a lot of personal stuff going on as well at 36 which I just turned 36 last week there's nothing anyone's ever going to say to me that's going to hurt my feelings you know what I mean 
um, because I let it happen before. And, you know, when I signed with Ring of Honor, I had signed with them off of one opportunity they gave me. So I knew I was definitely good enough to be there. Uh, and that was the one thing I told, you know, Tony, Cody, the EVPs, like, hey, I'm willing to do all this backstage work. Eventually, I will ask to wrestle because, you know, that's my dream. But at the same time, I don't, you know, I know how to wrestle. That's the one thing I know how to do. I don't know how to do all this production stuff and, and how to be a liaison between talent production and, and everything else. So I'm going to learn that. I'm going to mess up, but I'm probably going to be one of the hardest workers you'll find. It's just a matter of, you know, giving me a little bit of leniency to, to kind of mess up a little bit. I think you're selling yourself short in terms of what you don't know about television production because <laughs> the, the, the terms that you could be using right now would throw off the average everyday person. And that's just from sure. what you've learned in a year and a half. But it's also incredible that you were with AEW before Dynamite had launched on TV. You were a pre-day one kind of person. A lot of the roster came after day one. There were big signings and whatnot. When it was launching, did you know it was going to be huge or were you surprised? I knew as long as they kept the same fan base that they had it all in, it was going to be something special because at all in, I realized uh, when I was helping produce that show uh, last minute, um, I realized they, did, they kind of started a movement. It wasn't, they weren't selling wrestling, right? They sold out a whole show without even announcing a match. So it wasn't about wrestling. It was about this, you know, kind of like an indie you know, garage band that, you know, you didn't want to see them succeed, but you did still like you were going to support them as long as they stayed true to who they were. And I realized that that night, like, wow, this is something really special. And uh, I noticed that the differences between, you know, kind of what our talent does and what, you know, other companies have to do due to like, you know, the way that they handle their industry when it comes to meeting with fans and, and giving them that one-on-one, -on -one, um, you know, conversation and just looking them in the eye and saying like, Hey, thank you. You know, that's, it's very easy. I've been in sales all my life. It right. is extremely easy to be a great salesperson as long as you're genuine. Um, you know, and I think that's what AEW represents. We are like the genuine wrestlers out there living their dreams. Um, unfortunately, not every story in AEW on TV can be the guy that or girl that is living their dream, right? Because, right. you know, that's what makes people different. So I love the narrative that we tell, you know, that I'm... Uh, selfish and jealous of all the other people that you know and i don't I, it's it's one of my favorite things that i've gotten to do in my whole life the term that you used during that answer when you said indie garage band an interesting connecting factor of it all is hot topic is largely responsible for the rise of the indie bands that came out of new york and new jersey in the early 2000s that we would call emo or punk rock sure. or like brand new taking back sunday thursday glass jaw etc yeah, seen them all. You've seen them. Oh, really? I seen never picked all. you up as a punk rock guy. Did you go to Lifetime shows? So I went a lot to uh, Birch Hill. Oh, right? yeah. And then I went to, um, you know, the Asbury Park Convention Center. We yeah. saw uh, Finch and Newfound Glory. And I mean, I was I was all into it, you know, uh, starting line. One of my favorite. I still listen to them to this day, um, you know. And again, these are things that I can't go out on national television and take up the time to speak about which I'm sure is if people listen to this interview, that's going to gain me another couple, uh, you know, fan fans that are willing to, to boo me on when they're, you know, in the crowd. 
yeah, you like the same bands that, that they do or really that I do. It sounds like we were a lot of, at a lot of the same shows, probably some matinees at the Continental in New York City to sure. see these bands. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of funny in a way, like bringing it all together right there. Was uh, Jack Antonoff was in that band called Steel Train, which was a Jersey band in that whole scene. And then now mm -hmm. he's writing songs for Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus and those level artists. Right. And all that came out of Hot Topic in a way. And then if you look at some of the early merchandising success that some of the AEW talent had, that was because Hot Topic took it in. The mainstream stores didn't get it. They saw some indie appeal in this, you know, store that's in a couple hundred malls and whatnot, and that helped give it rise. So punk rock and wrestling have always had this big crossover. It's just, I find that people don't realize it. Do you realize that outright? It's huge. It's huge. I mean, I think a lot of it is that between punk rock and indie wrestling and wrestling in general, it's just not the cool thing that you tell your friends about, right? And selfishly we will kind of want to keep it close to ourselves because it's ours right and uh you know as good as that is that kind of hurts the the casual fan as well like there might be a casual fan of music that listens to starting line and thinks like man this band is amazing how come i've never heard them on you know a new z100 right how come i've never heard them on z100 um and it and it is what it is right and that's kind of like how we are but now we're becoming a, a lot more mainstream and we have become over the you know since dynamite started and I just hope that our fans realize, you know, even with any new signing that comes in or anything going on, we are still who we are and we're still doing this for, for them, right? Because they wanted an alternative. We realized that they were the ones that were pushing for the alternative. And as much as they don't want to admit it, I'm also part of the alternative. In the best of ways. And let's face it, a lot of the alternative bands turned out to be bigger than what they were alternative to, you know. Sure. How many, how many multi-million sellers were there by the original wave of alternative music like REM? <laughs> uh, right. Just a few, just a few. Yeah. So back to you and your success and giving you endless compliments and you not telling me, hey, enough compliments here. Uh, what I was mentioning before about, hey, how does this guy get this all done because he has so many jobs? There's another AEW weekly show coming very soon. So I can only imagine that's going to make your life even more crazy per se. But with a new show, with all the internet being a 24-7 news cycle, there's secrets all the time. Have you always been good at keeping secrets, knowing that you might know more than what the people who are typing the keyboard warriors are saying? Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's part of you know my job is to know some of these things and to not let it out. Right. And I would never, I never liked being spoiled. Like I have a friend and he's probably going to listen to this interview and he messages me every night wrestling is on. And if I can't watch something because for whatever reason, uh, you know, he's telling me what's going on and what he likes and dislikes. And I'm thinking like, man, you know, Greg, I kind of wanted to watch that, you know? So I know how it feels to be spoiled and I don't, I would never want to do it. And, I, and you never want to take away that genuine reaction from people. Uh, let's put it this way. I've wrestled one of my students before and I, in their first match. It's something I like to do. And I've told them, hey, you know, this is the finish and yada, yada, yada. And then in the middle of the match, like, I tell them to do something to me and I just don't kick out. And I let them beat me. And it's a genuine reaction. And it, they think, like, something bad happened, right? Someone messed up. 
But no, it's something that I, I want to do and I want to give them the genuine reaction. Plus, they probably told all their friends and family they weren't going to win and all this other stuff. Right. So, uh, you know, I think that's what makes everything fun is when you don't know what's about to happen. That makes any movie, any wrestling match, any story really good when you don't see it coming and then it happens. That's that's a fair statement right there. And we AEW fans have been surprised so many times by people appearing for the first time. Do you feel any pressure, even though, you know, you're not the only writer, you're not the only contributor. Do you feel any pressure to keep topping and topping with the surprises at all? So, again, I think that's something that I'm not, you know, in charge of. Right. Like that's Tony and the, and the, the higher ups than me. So. Uh, I think they do. Right. I think they, they want to keep it as fresh as possible and keep everyone on their toes and stuff like that. Cause that's what makes great TV. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, there's, there's stuff that again, when it, you don't know it's coming, like when sting came out, I went into the live audience to watch that because I genuinely wanted to, you know, feel the reaction. Right. Mm -hmm. Because one can only dream of having something like that happening, you know? So yeah, AEW's been really great at it. They've been great at keeping secrets. And, uh, you know, hopefully, I mean, the, the rumors are going crazy this week. Yeah. Um, so who knows what's going to happen? I don't even ask, to be honest. I genuinely don't. And there's times where I'll put something on a paper that just says special guest because that's what I've been told. And I don't want to know um, because I want to, you know, again, be surprised. And as long as, you know, Tony knows and the EVP and whoever is on the need to know basis knows, you know, I think that's what makes everything really fun. The one thing about you, I do, what's the name of the style of the shirt that you wear? Because this is kind of your trademark, but it's also Tony Soprano's trademark as well. Yeah, um, well, that was the thing, right? Like HBO Max and Warner Media were all together and they had the Sopranos and stuff. And when I turned on Cody, uh, I was just trying to think of what can set me apart. Also, what is what's cool, like toy toy wise, right? Um, what's different, what's comfortable. Uh, I don't like wearing a suit. I don't like wearing a tie. I don't want to just wear my AEW polo. Like, so these are something that I found and I was like, you know what? Uh, we spoke about it and Tony really liked it. And we just went from there and I just bought a, a bunch of them. <laughs> they're pretty expensive too. And I always rip that because they're, they're tight on my arms, but then when, if I move forward, so I try not to move around too much. Is there a name to what that shirt is called? Um, there isn't like, I guess bowling shirts is something you would look up, stuff like that. Uh, you know, everyone's always like, oh, you look like Charlie Sheen from two and a half. Like, no, again, Soprano. What, yeah, whatever they want to say, as long as they're talking about it, that's the biggest thing. <laughs> Fair. Well, I have uh, three more quick questions for you and then sure. you're a free man. And that first one is, do you miss living in New Jersey? Not at all. <laughs> no, I mean... I miss, you know, family, friends, stuff like that. But when you're an adult, right, I don't, you don't really have time for a lot of stuff anyway. So it's like, I get more time going to New Jersey for a weekend uh, to see everybody than I, I would if I lived there, because then you kind of yeah. take it for granted. Um, so, and the taxes are extremely high. So <laughs> Common wrestling answers right there. Yeah. Uh, next question. Although you're pretty darn busy, Besides Dynamite and Rampage in the near future, what's a TV show that we should be watching? Do you have a recommendation you can pass along? Uh, you mean AEW? Oh, but in addition to AEW, because we know everybody's watching that every week. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I really, you know, it's crazy. I'm a huge Law & Order fan, right? Like, I like to watch Law & Order. Um, and then the Yankees. I'm a huge baseball fan. And they lost a terrible game yesterday to the Red Sox that I almost threw the remote at my TV, you know. No hitter through seven innings. The guy gives up one hit, they take him out of the game. And I was like, you – and then they lost, you know which they deserve that after that. So, but I'm not going to write on Twitter that Aaron Boone should lose his job because I don't believe that anyone should lose their job over, you know, well, maybe, but I won't write it on Twitter. Let's put it that way. Fair. And the closing question for you, and this can be as long as you want or as short as you want. It's any last words for the kids. Oh man. Well, uh, out of character, I will tell them, just continue pursuing your dreams, right? Like when my parents told me to be whatever I wanted when I grew up, I think that was their way of saying, go to college and become a doctor. And, you know, I just thought they meant what they said. So I became a wrestler and uh, it took a very long time and there were a lot of ups and downs. And I always had a, a good fallback, like job wise and stuff like that. Um, and I'm a people person, so I've never been scared of being broke. I always knew I could go make money doing something, you know, whether it be working in a restaurant or, you know, delivery, anything, anything I could hustle with. Um, so I will tell them that. Uh, I'm just trying. So and then besides that, like in character, <laughs> I will tell them to continue watching the factory and know that we are going to be one of the best factions in AEW um, and just keep enjoying the show. And if you really enjoy the show as much as you say you do, which I've noticed a lot of people love our show mm -hmm. uh you know tell a friend or five and you know let's let's make aew the biggest thing it could possibly be because it changed my life it's changed a bunch of people's lives it changed a bunch of fans lives and um we truly are in like the revolution period of professional wrestling so yeah i guess that would be what i would like to say to them also uh ddp chose me remember that out of all of the professional wrestlers in the world to give the diamond cutter to. Uh, and it wasn't a gimmick. That was a true, genuine, called me up, told me he thought it would be good for my career. Uh, would, I, would I do it? And then we kind of made it a gimmick on, on YouTube because we couldn't just not tell the story. But the genuine story was that he chose me because of my hard work and dedication to the professional wrestling industry. Uh, and I'll never, and as much as people will say, Hey, you know, that diamond cutter is always going to make people think of DDP. I don't care. I want them to think of DDP and I want them to think of the fact that he chose me, whether people are, you know, whether it's popular or not. Uh, to me, it was one of the, the coolest things I could, you know, think about. I grew up watching that guy, you yeah. know, and then I teamed with him like in his last match ever. And then he called me and asked me if that was something I would be interested in. And I was like, are you kidding me? Would I be interested? Uh, yeah. So, you know. Um, so I'll tell them that as well when they get all upset. Hey, can you hear me, Wendy? I can. Can you see me? I can see you. I can hear you. How is your day going besides having to talk to media? Pretty good. Pretty good. I've been doing interviews nonstop. <laughs> yeah, people want to speak with you because you made an amazing book happen. And I was watching recently an interview from 2017 or so when you're talking to Loudwire and you're saying, well, this book is coming out. So was this like 10, 11 years in the making? 
Well, it just wasn't the right time, you know, to go down that road. Um, originally, I had gotten a publishing deal when Ronnie was still alive and he was writing it. But then when he passed away, it had to be put away. And, uh, you know, I kept kind of getting in and out, but I needed a kick in the butt. And it was actually Mick Wall that gave me the kick in the butt and said, Wendy, it's time this book came out. We need to get together and get this happening. So we did. You did. And one of my favorite parts of the book is how it ends. Now, I'm not going to spoil it, but most memoirs you, you read from singers don't end this way, where they kind of say, they kind of leave it to the imagination, but they also say, well, whatever happens, this is what I'm going to be doing. And you end it and go, there's still a lot happened after this. So it makes you wonder, is there a second volume that we might eventually see in some form? Or is it just, this is the greatest ending possible? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen afterwards. Um, with, uh, with going back to Sabbath in the 90s, going back to Sabbath in near the end, you know, giving a uh, uh, street named after him, doing yeah. like a whole bunch of different things. Losing the record deals in the 90s when grunge came in, everybody got dropped, having to go out and, you know, go back and, and find uh, another label, you know, uh, a small label, uh, having to start again in small places instead of arenas. There's a lot of ups and downs. There's still ups and downs, you know, getting the Grammy, all these different things. That, part two but i don't know it depends how part one goes if part one goes really well and the fans want part two then there'll be a part two but you know it depends it's all it was written for the fans ronnie wrote it from his heart and we tried to continue it through ronnie's ronnie's way of wanting it to be out you make a very good point though that that there were still highs and lows but i would say there were so many highs tenacious <laughs> d was a wonderful wonderful high that introduced him to a new generation of people who otherwise would have said you mean that guy from the 80s and then you go like that guy from the 80s he was in rainbow he did this in the 90s so ronnie just had one of those rare careers that was long successful for a long time and you had a lot to do with that but ronnie was not your only successful management client what was it that pushed you into artist management in the first place Ronnie, <laughs> Ronnie, you got to manage me. And I said, oh, gosh, that's kind of a big thing to to do. I don't know. Even though I have a background of, you know, I worked for a record label and I worked for uh, uh, booking agents and, and, and also lawyers in the, in the music business. But uh, that was a big, big thing to have to do. So I said, well, let's try. Let's just get some new bands and see what we can do with them first, see if I can do anything. So we kind of... Uh, we got Rough Cut and Alcatraz and Cooney and a whole bunch of other people. And uh, we just went from there. And some of the artists that you just mentioned, Rough Cut, for example, at least one member of that group went on to Orgy who had fame 12 years after Rough Cut in the first place. So that must feel good that you know that you personally have had such a lasting impact on the, on the music industry. Because let's face it, most people, two years of success in and out, done. And very hard when it was just uh, Sharon Osbourne and I were the only two women managers around yeah. at that time, you know, and it was it was a man's world and it was kind of hard to get in the man's world, but we did it. But you did it. Is there anything in the music industry that you personally still haven't accomplished that you still hope one might one day might happen? 
if you'd have asked me that a few years ago, I probably would have said something else. But now I'm 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 at the point I must retire sometime soon. And every time I say that, something else comes along. I'm you know I'm working with other people. I'm working with AC Dunbar. I'm working with um, Headcat. We've got their uh, their um, CDs coming out soon. I'm just working. And every time I say I'm gonna I'm gonna retire, something else comes up. So uh, right now, um, just just having a good time actually doing it obviously my charity work is very important to me um uh, the cancer we got to find a cure for that uh, mm -hmm. i work with a lot of animal charities which is fantastic um and you know i i just i'm a workaholic i think i enjoy what i do so i i, I think I, whatever comes along we'll be doing it <laughs> that's a good point i find that most managers don't like that idle time they think they need a vacation then they go on a vacation and then they bring out a pad and paper and they go, well, when I get back to the office, these are the things I'm going to do. And then you realize I'm working. So yeah. in, in your case, did you ever come close to quitting artist management or did you go, this is what I do? Probably every week with Ronnie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he's a control freak. I was a control freak. So we'd bash each other and, and yeah. And I'm sure he's laughing his head off right now because I'm having to do all these interviews and he hated doing interviews. He did them and he was good at it, but he always gave me a hard time about give, doing interviews. So now he's, he's laughing his head off at me. <laughs>